Um, but in any case, we're here to talk about immigration, national security, and diplomacy. Um, and I suppose I should begin with the obligatory Washington uh, disclaimer. So I'm speaking in my personal capacity. The opinions are all mine. Uh, they should not be attributed to IWP, FAIR, or any other shadowy government organization, uh, giant media conglomerates, or little old ladies named Ethel. So it's all me. Um, I have worked in immigration for about uh, 20 years. Um, it's an interesting field, but it's a field that has uh, changed quite distinctly over the 20 years that I've been working in it. And I think it's gone from uh, tolerable to worse, um, unfortunately. Um, it is a controversial subject. It's something that uh, provokes a lot of emotions in a lot of people. So please don't take anything that I say as anti-immigrant or anti-immigration. Um, we're all here to learn about policies, both domestic and international, and how we handle problems that affect the national security of the United States. And this is, I think, the biggest problem that we're currently facing. So to start with, um, there's a notion that the world is becoming more global. I don't think that's true. Um, the movement of people has been the most significant driver of world history since day one. Um, really, you only need to look at the history of the Roman Empire to know that the current so-called phenomenon of globalism has been going on since the beginning. I think you'd even go to the point where you could say that in international politics, you could steal the title from the old 1968 Lucille Ball and Henry Fonda movie, Yours, Mine, and Ours. And so from the very beginning, it's been a process of trying to figure out what's yours, what's mine, and what is ours, or what's the global commons. So it puts us in a position where immigration is the single most significant national security and diplomacy issue facing the United States today. Well, why is that? We have two significant threats that we're facing, one external and one internal. Now, the external threat comes from the current clash between what's commonly characterized as the Christian West and the Islamic world. So we're currently faced with a large number of people who want to kill us for what we believe or convert us to their way of thinking. Now, this isn't a condemnation of Islam. There's clearly a, a particular group of people in a particular subset of the Islamic culture that believe this way. But the fact is, it's real, and it's resulted in the death of Americans both here and abroad. So, when you're trying to visualize this clash, think Ada Bozeman, not Samuel Huntington. Uh, it really isn't Jihad versus McWorld, or the Lexus and the Olive Tree, or whatever pithy statement that somebody's come up with to sell a book. What it's really about is a fundamental disagreement over what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil. The internal threat comes from a different source. It comes from places like the European Union and the United Nations that erode the concept of national sovereignty. Sovereignty is essentially an agreement that what's mine is what is mine, what's yours is yours, and we'll all behave politely and avoid discussions of sex, death, and taxes when we're sharing what's ours. Sovereignty is a key concept whenever you're talking about immigration because obviously sovereignty defines what's the United States, what are we in control of? And it's an exercise of sovereignty determining whether someone can enter that space or not. So immigration as we currently allow it to occur really is the, the proverbial place where the rubber meets the road. Uh, it's where people start to say, which yours is mine, or at the very least ours, and here's how you should change it in order to meet my requirements. 
And should anyone doubt that characterization, let's take a look at recent history. We have a resurgent Russia. Russia essentially has gone into sovereign neighboring countries and taken them over. You have China building islands in the South China Sea in order to assert dominance over that territory. Uh, we have a Middle East that's collapsing, and we have Turkey, which is a gateway to Europe in complete political disarray. U.S. has lost its position as the guarantor of the global commons, and in particular the international sea lanes. Domestically, we have a president who has defied the will of the people, as expressed through Congress, and granted a mass amnesty to immigrants, the single largest group of lawbreakers in the United States. These are people who have begun their relationship with the United States by violating the laws and essentially becoming trespassers. He's sought to defy the sole court in the United States that had the constitutional fortitude, pun intended, to issue an injunction stopping the madness. And he sued the state of Arizona when the state tried to, in a federalist system, exert its own authority to try and deal with the problem. And the response of the, the lawbreakers is to turn out with the flags of their home countries and offer rule of law based arguments about why they're protected by the Constitution. Now think about that. If you come home and you find some guy sitting in your living room, what are you going to do? You're going to call 911. And if he says, well, it's a really hot day and I just wanted to enjoy your air conditioning and have a cool glass of water, you're not going to go, never mind, I'm not going to call the police. Hang around and can I feed you too? But that's essentially what we have happening in mass in the United States. We have a large number of people with no authorization to be here who are here with their handout expecting the United States to take care of them. And that has a direct effect on you and I because it costs the taxpayers money. It affects the ability of hospitals and schools and all kinds of public services to provide the things that we're paying to have provided. So these things probably sound a lot like domestic policy issues, uh, welfare, sanctuary cities. How does all this connect to world politics, which is what we study here at the Institute? Well, simply put, immigration is border control. It's primarily about sovereignty. If you have a country that doesn't have any borders, it's not really a country at all. I mean, if you can't control who comes in and out, who becomes a member of the polity, you don't have any control over your country or the politics because you don't have any control over the polity. And that's particularly problematic in a country like the United States where we have government of the people, by the people, and for the people. That implies an inherent right to determine who the people are. So the border is 100% in a very real sense, the area where the concerns of the outside world, the international community, individual countries, collide head on with the domestic concerns of the United States, and in particular the American public. And I guess you could say immigration is where international relations issues or international issues in general become domestic political issues. So the 9-11 Commission blamed the attacks on the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and the planned attack on the Capitol on a failure of imagination and intelligence. I think they were wrong. It was a failure of immigration enforcement. So I respectfully submit to you that we don't have a terrorism problem, we have an immigration problem. While I don't have any issues with the strategic objectives underlying the invasion of Afghanistan, it wouldn't have been my first action. I simply would have begun enforcing the immigration laws that are already on the books. No immigration violations, no September 11th hijackers. 
no immigration violations, no Abdel Rahman, and no attack on the World Trade Center in 1993. It's really very simple. So terrorism is a hot issue right now, but immigration really should be a hotter issue because it implicates other national security and public safety concerns. What about foreign intelligence operatives? Now, I have about 13 years in the government. I cannot count the number of people that we looked at when I was dealing with immigration enforcement who were foreign intelligence operatives. And they came from people who were quite simply in the employee, direct employee of a foreign government. They had been trained. They had gone to school. They were collecting a paycheck from their own country. And they had simply immigrated to the United States in order to get a hold of information. And we had other people, and the case that particularly comes to mind, was a woman who was an ethnic Persian from Pakistan uh, who had immigrated to the United States and applied for citizenship. And when we took a look at her travel patterns, we found that she had gone to the Islamic Awakenings Conference. Now, does anybody know what that is? Okay, the Islamic Awakenings Conference, I see one person nodding her head, is Iran has this crazy belief that its function is to unite the Shia and Sunni worlds, thereby provoking the apocalypse and taking over the world and dominating it under Islam. Now, this is not a mainstream Muslim view by any stretch of the imagination, but it is frightening. And they sponsor a conference every year where people from both Sunni and Shia factions come to Iran to listen to speeches and to discuss plans and to learn about techniques for trying to bring this all to fruition. So we live in a brave new world. We have this thing called the internet and on it is this thing called YouTube. And what does the Iranian government do? Well, it puts videos of all of these conferences. So my team and I simply said, hmm, I wonder if we can see her in the pictures. Well, don't you know, in this sea of black, who's sitting there in a purple leopard print hijab, but this particular person. And she had told us that she had no connection whatsoever to any of the funny stuff. It was a student conference. She went there for a political pilgrimage. And, you know, she didn't even see the Ayatollah. And who's sitting in the front row chanting death to America with the Ayatollah, but this applicant for United States citizenship. Now, that in and of itself, when you've been working in immigration long enough, is not particularly disturbing. It happens all the time. What was disturbing was when we brought this to the Office of Chief Counsel to get clearance on how to proceed. And we got told things like, well, it's a First Amendment right. I said, well, no. There's a case called Klein-Deanst versus Mandel that specifically says that when there's a balance between First Amendment rights and national security interests, the national security interests trump. And then they said things, well, all the cases on this are really old. And I said, well, so is Marbury versus Madison. Should we just chuck this out the window? And they defaulted to evidence issues and said, well, how can we prove it's her? And I said, Stevie Wonder and Ray Charles could tell it was her. Eventually, the case was denied. But the case was probably only denied because the people higher than me, above my pay grade, making the decisions, were really concerned about bad media coverage, mm. not concerned about, wow, this is a person who has made it into the United States, virtually unchallenged, and now is about to become a citizen. So, bring this into connection with our current political situation. Donald Trump made a comment that if he had his way, he'd ban all Muslims from coming to the United States. Now, that's a bit of an overly broad statement. He didn't phrase it very well. Once again, anyone that's paid attention to Donald Trump for the last umpteen years, that's not really surprising. The man has a tendency to make bold statements that um, quite frequently don't have a lot of backing in reality. But 
In this particular case, what was really shocking was there was a stream of talking heads that came out afterwards and said, that's unconstitutional. That's illegal. Well, I wish that all of these talking heads had actually sat down and read the Constitution. And the fact is, all of us here at the Institute, if we haven't, should sit down and read the Constitution cover to cover. And I would recommend doing it with the Heritage Society's Guide to the Constitution, which is a particularly well done guide on what the nuances of the Constitution mean. But the fact is that the Supreme Court has been agreeing with Donald Trump for about the last hundred plus years. Um, in particular, there was a case, and I believe it was decided in 1892, called Nishimura versus Ekiu. And I quote, the Supreme Court said, it is an accepted maxim of international law that every sovereign nation has the power, as inherent in sovereignty and essential to self-preservation, to forbid the entrance of foreigners within its dominions or to admit them only in such cases and upon such conditions as it may see fit to prescribe. Now, that wasn't the last case to deal with this. Um, in the United States, uh, excuse me, in United States v. Valenzuela Bernal, which was a 1982 case, the Supreme Court said the power to regulate immigration, an attribute of sovereignty essential to the preservation of any nation, has been entrusted by the Constitution to the political branches of the federal government. And that echoes a number of other cases. There was one called uh, United States as relates to Knopf versus Shaughnessy. Uh, the exclusion of aliens is a fundamental act of sovereignty. Whatever the procedure authorized by Congress is, it is due process as far as the alien denied entry is concerned. In addition to that, Title VIII, Section 1182 of the U.S. Code specifically states the President has the authority by proclamation to spend the entry of any aliens or any class of aliens into the United States who would be detrimental to the interests of the United States for however long he deems necessary. So in essence, he didn't do it very eloquently, but all that Trump suggested was the United States consider exercising its sovereignty. Now, I'm not a particular fan of Donald Trump and his populist politics or his lack of constitutional knowledge, and I'm certainly not advocating a ban on Islamic immigration or, for that matter, a general ban on any type of immigration. But the fact is, Donald Trump couldn't be that far off the mark if the Supreme Court of the United States has been consistently agreeing with him since at least 1892. So what is it about immigration laws that make them different from all other laws? And why do people feel perfectly comfortable sending a message that it's okay to violate the very laws that ensure our territorial integrity? Well, I think it's a result of what I like to call the immigration cliche. And we've divorced immigration from the ugly realities associated with it and the responsibilities that go along with it. And we've turned it into a cherished political myth like George Washington and the cherry tree. Now, I'm going to say something here, and I want you to help me finish the sentence. We are a nation of... Okay, where does that come from, and what does it mean? Does anyone know? I don't know where it comes from. I mean, where the exact sentence was phrased, but this country, except for Native Americans, everyone became people. It started with the Irish Protestants who came up Okay, well, would you be surprised to find out that immigration is not mentioned anywhere in the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence? And I'll get to that in a moment. But that line, where a nation of immigrants, it comes from a 1958 book that was written by Senator John F. Kennedy. 
And it was essentially a propaganda piece for changing the immigration laws of the United States so that we could admit more people from the developing world. Now, that in and of itself is not a problem. But one of the key things that you have to consider when you are admitting people to a country is how are they going to assimilate? So excerpts from uh, Kennedy's book, which actually was called A Nation of Immigrants, uh, were published in 1963 by the New York Times Magazine, and they helped to secure the passage of the 1965 Immigration Act. Now, the problem with that act is previously we had what was called the National Origins Quota System. It was very much maligned. Uh, but the historical fact is that Congress took a snapshot of the United States, I think first in 1902 and then revised it again in 1911 and said, who's here? If we want people to assimilate, we should probably get people from countries where people have already come here. They have a community to go to. They have people that can help them figure out the transition. It's a lot easier for a German to show a German how to be an American than it is for a Frenchman to show a German how to be an American. And they established quotas for a reasonable amount of immigration. And it actually worked remarkably well because people assimilated very well into the United States. Uh, that wave of immigration was essentially the wave that produced the greatest generation of people who went off and fought World War II. Now, for anyone who thinks that assimilation is not a really big problem, has anyone ever seen the movie The Gangs of New York? It's an atrocious bit of cinematography. It was one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my entire life. However, even though it's not historically accurate in terms of the details, it is historically accurate in one respect. One of the biggest problems that we encountered in the Civil War, and my last name is O'Brien, so please, if you must call me anti-immigrant, do so, but we had huge numbers of people that came here from Ireland, uh, fleeing British oppression and fleeing the potato famine. And they promptly organized themselves into big groups in New York City, and they refused to register for conscription for military service in the Civil War. They said, basically, this isn't our war. It's America's war. We're new here. Now, you contrast that to the fact that about 10, 15 years later, they all wound up becoming police officers in the United States. Um, it's kind of interesting. But we have a bunch of myths connected with immigration that prohibit us from doing what it is that we need to do to secure the country. The other one is they'll do the jobs Americans won't do. Well, this is never accompanied by any factual information that empirically demonstrates the point. It paints Americans as lazy and arrogant, and it, frankly, it excuses the exploitation of illegal immigrant labor. And, you know, to put it perfectly bluntly, we had a war over the same issue in the 1860s, and that all didn't work out so well for the United States. So I, the question that we need to ask is, do we want immigrants to assimilate and compete with Americans on an equal footing? Or does that offend the sensibilities of the elite classes who are perfectly happy to hire Juan as a gardener and Blanca as a maid, but tend to get really bent out of shape when Juan and Blanca's kids wind up competing for their children's places at Harvard or Stanford or fill in the name, with the exception of an occasional illegal alien scholarship student who's admitted to confirm the evils left behind by colonialism and oppression? Or do we want to live in a world where we welcome people here to the United States, we actually actively help them become part of our communities, and we help them to compete on an equal footing? When you cast the term, the debate in the terms that it's currently been cast, 
enforcement rather than becoming governmental function and a right of a sovereign nation winds up becoming considered oppression. And the very people who began their relationship with the United States as trespassers in violation of the law wind up becoming a protected class, the legally as well as a culturally protected class. And I think that a lot of that comes from the Frankfurt School deconstructionism, everything is bad, blah, 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 nothing has any meaning. But the fact is that in the United States, citizenship still does have meaning, and it's a very significant meaning. And because this stability of our nation is predicated on the values that we bring to the public sphere as a sovereign nation, we have a right to request a certain standard of behavior in our communities and in our private interactions with each other. So if we wish to remain an open and a free society, we need to control our borders and we need to make it clear to the rest of the world that we, and only we, on our own terms and conditions, will determine who may come in and when. Now, that doesn't mean you close the borders. I grew up uh, just next door to Salem, Massachusetts, well known for the witch trials. What a lot of people don't realize is at one point in time, it was the major commercial center for what's called the China trade. So in the late 17 and early 1800s, huge numbers of ships left Salem Harbor and traded. Occasionally, they brought back people from China who were interested in coming to the United States and opening businesses. It wasn't large numbers, but it happened. So immigration is not something that we're ever going to do away with, nor should we want to. But the fact is that we have to regulate the flow. We should remain open to the world, but we should only accept those people who ostensibly wish to be Americans, and we should only accept them in numbers that are low enough to allow us to make them full members of our communities and to assimilate them to our way of life. Now, there's a lot of controversy about how did the Founding Fathers feel about immigration, but the fact is that that's exactly what they envisioned. It was an ordered assimilation of freedom seekers into an ordered liberty. Now, I think to benefit from the people who we consider our Founding Fathers and who left us priceless gifts like the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, we have to understand the problems they were confronting as they did. Um, I'm a big fan when looking at documents like the Declaration and the Constitution of going back and trying to find a dictionary that's contemporary to find out what the words that were used meant at the time that they were used. Now, that can be a bit of a pain because books were expensive then, a lot of people didn't have them, and a lot of them don't remain in uh, circulation. But interestingly enough, Webster, who was a contemporary of the Founding Fathers and who wrote the dictionary, um, did his original dictionary in 1828, and that's available online. Um, so I want to take a look at some of the words that we use when we talk about immigration in the context of the way they were understood when the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence were written. So a nation is a body of people inhabiting the same country or united under the sovereign or government as the English nation, the French nation. A country is referred to as the kingdom, state, or territory in which one is born, the land of nativity, or the particular district indefinitely in which one is born. America is my country, or Connecticut is my country. Now, you'll notice that these words actually have a connotation of a bond and have a connotation of the existence of a unifying authority that we don't tend to use in those words when we talk about them today. Now, an immigrant, and this is particularly interesting, because the word was used very freely to refer to the, com excuse me, the colonists themselves, 
who were British and were coming to a British territory. And it's a person that removes into a country. And here's where the use of that term country, meaning territory or place, as opposed to country, a nation, a united group of people comes into play for the purposes of permanent residence. So immigrant referred both to somebody who was coming from, say, Germany to settle in the British realm in the colonies, but also referred to someone who was coming from Britain to settle in British territory. Now, citizen in the United States is a person, and this is the old definition, it actually makes a reference to in the United States, distinguishing it from what it meant in old Europe. A person, native or naturalized, who has the privilege of exercising the elective franchise or the qualifications which enable him to vote for rulers and to purchase and hold real estate. Now, if you look at all of these terms in concert, there's a clear dividing line between those who have merely moved someplace to take up permanent resident, residence, excuse me, and those who are united under a government. It's the fundamental distinction between a citizen and an immigrant. You can only have a nation when individuals are willing to cast off their old political bonds and become citizens. You can't have a nation full of people who remain immigrants. Now, as I noted before, immigration isn't mentioned in the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence. They both refer to naturalization. And naturalization, as defined by Webster in 1828, referred to conferring on an alien the rights and privileges of a native, subject, or citizen, to adopt foreigners into a nation or state, and place them in the condition of natural-born subjects. Also means to make natural, to render easy, and familiar by custom and habit, as custom naturalizes labor or study. And I think that gets the essence of what the founders meant when they were talking about immigration. It wasn't a case of putting the cart before the horse, referring to end process of naturalizing before the beginning. Um, in contemporary society, we tend to look at things in, in the sense of a large, poorly policed set of borders coupled with small cities would make it more difficult to control immigration. But you have to take into account that it took a month to get from Europe to the United States. The communities were very small. Everyone knew everyone. There weren't any police forces. Nobody was really worried about controlling the border because communities tended to police themselves. Now, I don't mean that in the sense of just against crime. Communities tend to watch out for each other at that time and pay attention to their neighbors. There were no fire departments. There were no police departments. There were no public services as we think of them today. So it was expected that anyone who did immigrate to the United States was either present, present excuse me, as the representative of a foreign government someone who was on an extended stay to conduct trade, or someone who intended to stay. They were going to assimilate and naturalize because it wasn't easy to pop in and pop out. And it's interesting because the, the debates that the founding fathers had about immigration sound remarkably like the ones that we have today. Um, Jefferson, in Notes on the State of Virginia, said of immigrants, they will bring with them the principles of the governments they leave, imbibed in their early youth, or, if able to throw them off, it will be in exchange for an unbounded licentiousness, passing, as is usual, from one extreme to another. It would be a miracle were they to stop precisely at the point of temperate liberty. And then he says, and this one is kind of amusing, I actually like it. Suppose 20 millions of Republican Americans thrown all of a sudden into France. What would be the condition of that kingdom? 
If it would be more turbulent, less happy, less strong, we may believe that the addition of half a million of foreigners to our present numbers would produce a similar effect here. So you see, there's a tension. There's an assumption that, yes, we are going to get immigrants, but we need to actually exercise some decision-making over who we're going to have here because we've built something special. We just wrested it away from England, and we really don't want a whole bunch of those funky Frenchmen who like to drink and party too much coming in here and wrecking everything for us. Um, and it was interesting because they kind of talk about Frenchmen in particular as if they were some kind of special folk that, um, you know, didn't have the upbringing and civilization that the British did, which is kind of amusing since France kind of sees itself as the cradle of all culture in the world. Um, but I think the most important thing that you can take away from this is what they were trying to build was a nation of Englishmen. Now, that's not some racist white supremacist notion. It wasn't about what people looked like or the languages they spoke. It was about the institutions. Societies rest on institutions. And if you build the right institutions, you build a society like we all live in. If you build the wrong institutions, you build a society like Nazi Germany. So there was an attempt to preserve English institutions. And there was an attempt to preserve what the Founding Fathers saw as the desirable traits of the English legal system, the English political system. And specifically, they sought to preserve it from influences that would decrease liberty. So what we have now is a situation where we have ceased debating in any kind of realistic terms about immigration, and we've ceased discussing the impact that it has on our institutions or our security, and you only need to watch the news. I mean, when I was a kid, Reagan was in office, we were worried about getting nuked by the Russians. No one ever thought that we were going to be in a situation where there would be people who immigrated here, then on this thing called the internet, which no one knew would exist, we're going to join terrorist organizations and start killing people in the streets of the United States. And once again, it's an immigration problem. So to wrap up, I want to talk about diplomacy, because that's another of the things here that is a primary focus of IWP. Um, and then we can use the remainder of the time for questions. Um, when you take a look at immigration and diplomacy, the diplomatic establishment in the United States tends to view diplomacy as this bottomless trough from which we can grab all manner of incentives and inducements to get people to do things, the prize being you get to come here. If you're a dissident, you can come here. If you're somebody that the government doesn't like, you can come here. If you're some nasty official that we don't want here, like leaders from the Iranian government, well, you know, we'll give you a visa to come here and speak at the UN. And then we let you go to Colombia and talk. Well, that's dangerous. In some respects, immigration is a useful tool, in particular for public diplomacy. Um, educational exchanges, when they're properly regulated and overseen, can do a lot to convince the people of another country that the U.S. is a friend, or at the very least, not an enemy. But it's a double-edged sword. Other nations are actively engaged in, in what we call in the immigration profession diaspora diplomacy, uh, which refers to the process of trying to use expat populations to influence the policy decisions and sometimes even directly the electoral politics of the host nation. Now, this tends to happen a lot more in the United States than it does in other places. Um, clearly, England, France, Germany also have a problem with this. Um, 
And if you look at the results of that, the Mexican economy is now wholly dependent on millions of dollars of remittance payments that come from Mexican nationals living both legally and illegally in the United States. Now, think about the effects of that. Mexico is on the verge of being a failed state. It has a bizarre system of government that is quasi-fascist, quasi-democratic, and it clearly doesn't work. Why do we want people to be sending back money, which then gets taxed and props up that government? Well, there is an argument that we don't want Mexico to fall apart on our southern border, so perhaps that's a good thing. But the flip side is, is that perpetuating all the problems that are allowing the drug traffickers, the human smuggling and trafficking rings, and terrorists to exploit the Mexican border? And if we didn't let it happen, might we have a different Mexican state that was a more reliable partner to the South, something similar to what Canada is to the North? I think it also points up the difference that Canada is a country built on the same English institutions that we have, and Mexico is one that's built on a very different set of Spanish institutions that are distinct from ours. Now, China and Russia both have a significant diaspora population in the United States, as do some other places with some scary things going on, like Ethiopia, Eritrea, Somalia, and the Balkan states. Now, that creates a situation where you have a community of people that is concerned about things that go on in their own countries. That's perfectly natural. Nobody would expect them to abandon their roots. But it also means that they have a connection to a foreign government. Foreign governments want things from the United States. And we live in a free and open society. Every time I go to a, a uh, conference on national security around here, there's you know a Kazakh public access television station. Now, when I was a little kid, I don't think 99% of the people I knew knew that there was a Kazakhstan. Of course, it was tucked in the Soviet Union at that time. Um, but who would have thought that they were going to launch into the territory of Wayne's World and have their own public access cable television station? And those are very effective methods for you know, spreading all kinds of everything from propaganda uh, you know, to political truth and everything in between to communities that are here in the United States. Now, we don't live in a society that monitors those kind of things, nor should we. But it does create a problem because it's a backdoor into the U.S. political system for people that, when they become citizens, regardless of where they're from, are entitled to participate as full and equal members in our political process. Now, the U.S. really has to balance its international obligations in the refugee and political asylum arenas as well. Um, our national security interests are not, and I've just written a couple of things that were published in the press about this over the last couple of weeks. Um, when we're admitting refugees, we're not taking into account at the present time the realities of the situation. Vetting, which is a big word in the media right now, is really a very simple process. You pulled over by a police officer. Police officer takes your driver's license. He goes into a database or she goes into a database and looks you up and gets an idea of what you've been up to. That happens because we live in a society where there are transactions that we keep records of. Not every society functions that way, and many societies that do function that way don't share their information with us. So we were very lucky in Iran and to a certain extent Afghanistan as a result of our invasions, and as a result of the military actions there, we grabbed a lot of records, and we were able to ingest them into our systems. Now, it's a funny thing about dictatorial police states. They're fanatical about keeping records. If you want to control a population, you keep records on everything. So in terms of vetting people from Iraq, 
99% of the time, I don't want to say it's an easy process, but it's a more effective process than it is vetting people from other places. Afghanistan has a very segmented, fragmented tribal culture, which doesn't run on records. So we didn't get as much information from Afghanistan. Now, Syria is a dictatorial police state. It may have a ton of information, but it's one of those countries that doesn't share it with us. Now, as a person who's written most of the policies that are used to vet people who are applying for immigration benefits, I can tell you, we do not have a way to effectively vet the people that are being led into the United States as refugees right now. And there's a problem with vetting as a concept. Vetting can tell you who you shouldn't let in. If you find that someone is a serial killer, that they're a terrorist, that they've had bomb-making equipment in their basement, you just don't let them in. But the fact is, it can't tell you what's in someone's heart or someone's mind. So if someone has kept their nose clean, even though they have malevolent intentions, you'll never find out about it. It's just not something that's going to come up because you don't have any way to look in a database and find that. So we really need to get to a point where if we want to remain safe and not have our freedoms being taken away in the, the name of national security, where we have to ha start having honest conversations about all of these things that are going on. Um, in terms of, of how these things import international problems to us, one of the things that we also fail to consider when we're making decisions about refugees, we tend to make case-by-case -case decisions based on the applicable US and international law. But there have been a number of situations where we have imported a foreign country's conflict here. They, a few years back, had terrible problems in Boston, Massachusetts between the Ethiopian and the Eritrean communities because they had a grudge that led to Eritrea splitting from Ethiopia. And people don't necessarily let go of those things just because they've come to the United States. And that's happened in a number of different instances. Very frequently, we wind up destabilizing a potentially friendly state because we take so many of the people who are in the friendly camp that we actually tip the balance and the state winds up going in a direction that is away from a U.S. orientation. And that's another problem. So to kind of put a cap on all of this, what, what's the real problem here? Well, the United States doesn't have an immigration policy. It's a collection of myths and a collection of legal procedures and a collection of measures that have been taken to respond to special interest groups. Now, whether that be Disney looking for cheap labor, uh, whether it be the agricultural business looking to fill what sometimes are legitimate gaps in its labor pool, uh, whether it be ethnic interest groups, racial grievance groups, you name it. There's been all kinds of special immigration provisions that have been taken and put into effect in order to please those groups. The one thing that we haven't done is enacted procedures and laws and regulations that take into account the interests of the American people as a whole. So how do we correct this situation? Well, going back to uh, diplomacy, diplomacy tends to work best when diplomatic efforts are reciprocal. It's a, it's a process of negotiation. Yet, very few countries in the world are as open to immigration as the U.S. is. So, I think our diplomatic establishment should be significantly less squeamish about denying visas to people from countries that are difficult to negotiate with. It's a means of extracting diplomatic concessions. It's a very peaceful, nonviolent, and very effective means. Because if you're in a country that has a lot of businessmen that come here to do 
thousands, millions, billions of dollars of transactions, they want to come to the United States. And if you suddenly tell them they can't come, the fact is that Skype doesn't work all that well when you start getting significantly distant from the United States. And nobody likes to negotiate a business deal for that much money over an unsecure internet service. So these are very effective means of getting people to do things that we want them to do or need them to do without resorting to force or sanctions or other things that are more complicated. But probably the simplest and easiest thing to do is to just enforce the immigration laws that are on the books. We have a very long and complicated Immigration and Nationality Act. However, it's got all the provisions that we need to actually control the borders. The problem is that there's selective enforcement. And it goes back to the point I made earlier. Why is it that people think it's okay to violate immigration laws? You know, they don't think burglary is okay. They don't think robbing stores is okay. But immigration laws, it's almost fashionable to, to violate them. Think about what Hollywood does with this. Um, back when I was a kid, there was a movie with Gerard Depardieu called Green Card, where he's basically a visa overstayer with no respect for the United States. And he's the conductor of an orchestra, and some woman marries him in order to get him green card status. Now, the movie was very romantic and cute, but the fact is she committed a felony that carries a 25-year penalty and a $250,000 fine. And yet, we persist in showing that as something that is somehow grandiose, wonderful, acceptable, and bizarrely, something that's uniquely American. It's our understanding of people who are seeking freedom. It's ridiculousness. And if you think about similar situations, we, we, we get into a panic about video games that have violence or that glorify auto theft like Grand Theft Auto. And yet we'll make movies and perpetuate all of these societal myths that say, hey, this thing that undergirds our territorial integrity and keeps this society intact, no big deal. So we need to enforce the laws. In the interim, we really have to acknowledge that we don't have an immigration policy worthy of the name. We don't have any kind of coherent national strategy for addressing anything immigration. And if you think about it, we read them here at IWP. There's a national security strategy. There's a national defense strategy. There's a national strategy. I actually found this document when I was doing research for this presentation. There's a national strategy for combating infectious disease. Okay, now, admittedly, that's important, but that's a national strategy that applies to a very small number of people who work in places like the CDC and the Hospital of Bethesda and things of that nature. Immigration affects almost everyone. Fact is that people tend to think of borders as the northern and southern borders, but we have two coasts that are thousands of miles long that are also borders, and we have hundreds of international airports where every day of the year people enter the United States. There's another thing that we're not doing, and that's using information warfare. Now, if you stop and think about it, the messages that we send about immigration are all contradictory. They encourage people to undermine the integrity of our borders. We have, uh, with the recent unaccompanied minor crisis, I saw, as we had a bunch of these printed out and we're looking at them when I was still working for the government, magazine ads in Latin American countries that said, hey, the U.S. plans to do this DACA program, send your kids. And of course, we wound up with 50 to 60,000 minors on the border all of a sudden. Um, you can't send out those messages in that fashion and then wonder why people do exactly what you told them to do. Now, 
everybody who's familiar with the Border Patrol, Customs and Border Protection, we have an armed force that protects our border. We have the Immigration Inspection Service that works with them at the ports of entry to conduct immigration inspections. Mexico has basically a giant nationwide volunteer fire department that assists people, actively assists them, in illegally crossing the United States border. Now, to my way of thinking, that's an act of war. I, I think the Mexicans would probably tend to get a little irritated if we had some organized uniform force that was funded by the United States government consistently encouraging people to make incursions into their territory. So one of the things that can be done is you can craft a message and say, come here, we welcome you, it's part of our tradition, but you need to behave. You need to conform to our standards and you need to respect our laws. But in effect, the message that we're saying is, hey, come in, behave any way you want. We really don't care and we're not going to send you home. The priority enforcement program that has gone on under the Obama administration has dropped deportations by 80 or 90 percent. Um, you know, that's one of those things where people stop and they look at it and they go, well, who were we actually deporting? Well, I can tell you, I uh, worked for Immigration and Customs Enforcement as a trial attorney in what was called the Institutional Hearing Program. And that was where we found people who were in prison in the United States. And when they came up for parole, they got an immigration hearing in front of an immigration judge. And then we put them onto a Justice Department flight and deported them. Uh, the last year that I worked for Immigration and Customs Enforcement, I want to say there were about 400,000 deportations. Now, the conservative estimate, and this is a conservative estimate, is that there are 13 and a half million people illegally in the United States. Those are people who either crossed the border illegally or who had authorization to be here but then overstayed their visa. If you think about that, I'm not good with math, that's why I went to law school instead of medical school, but what percentage of 13 million is 400,000? It's a very tiny percentage. The fact is that when we were engaged in the most deportations that we've ever been engaged in, we were only taking the worst of the worst. These people were rapists, murderers, terrorists, hardcore criminals, drug dealers, pedophiles, human traffickers. Those were the people who were being removed. We weren't even getting to the people who were engaging in labor violations or who simply were here and didn't have any authorization to be here. So if you take 80% of that 1% of people that are being removed and you stop deporting them, then who are you getting rid of? And once again, that sends a very clear message. Our border is open. Come violate it. Come violate our laws. We don't care. So we really need an immigration information operations entity that works across both Department of Homeland Security and Department of State lines and engages in some kind of uniform messaging about immigration. And we're in the United States. Messaging that we do should conform with our laws. It should say this is what the deal is. Now, there is precedent for this. Australia, and unfortunately I was going to print out a big poster of this and I couldn't get the plotter at work to, uh, to print it for me, but Australia launched a program called Don't Come to Australia Illegally. I kind of like that title. It's very simple. It says exactly what it's all about. And they produced these phenomenal posters that show a dark storm-tossed sea with a little tiny boat on it. And it says, do not come to Australia illegally. You will not be let in. Now, Australia developed a huge problem. And this is one of those things where 
geography and strategy comes in really handy because you start getting a look at how the world fits together. But when we think of Afghanistan, we think, well, you know, far away, difficult to get here. But the fact is that you can actually make your way through Afghanistan to the waterfront in Pakistan, board a boat and go to Australia. And while it's a particularly rough passage, it's a relatively short trip. So Australia all of a sudden found itself beset with boat people, very much like the Haitian and Cuban boat people that the United States experienced in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s. And they were having a problem because the sea passage is so much more rough and so much more dangerous than it is in the United States. They were having large numbers of Australian Coast Guard naval personnel and law enforcement personnel from the equivalent of the uh, Australian Border Patrol who were being put at very grave risk. Then they were having problems where they were admitting people in order to review and adjudicate their asylum applications and people were engaging in criminal activity and they were finding that people had connections to terrorism. So finally at one point the Australian government said enough is enough. We're going to advertise. We're going to tell people don't come. Well shockingly it worked. And in the first two years that the program was in place, uh, it reduced seaborne attempts to enter Australia by over 99%. That one boat, and that one actually would have been caught, but it slipped through a hole during a storm and a naval cordon off of Australia. Um, and I believe that as a result, most of the people actually were still apprehended when they announced themselves to the Australian authorities, taken to a processing facility, and they were all returned home. Um, we need to think about doing things like this. It's very inexpensive, but in order to do that, we have to take a cold, hard, serious look at what's going on with immigration in the United States. What are the effects? And we have to put aside the myths and figure out what is the problem and, and how dangerous has this become for us? But we're not doing that. And if you look at a lot of the arguments that have gone on about immigration during the course of this campaign, neither one of the candidates knows anything about the issue. They're, they're reacting toward the same old myths and the same old cultural tropes that we've been reacting to for a long time, and they're not working. Now, I do think in some respects Donald Trump has a better grip on the issue, and nobody's recorded him at a private speech saying that he wants open borders. Um, but the fact is that this is an issue that's not well understood except by people that work in it, and it should be an issue that people who are interested in international relations and diplomacy and intelligence are taking a serious look at. Um, so I'll just end on that note. This is our country. Sovereignty is not a dirty word. We should be able to determine, particularly if we're committed to the rule of law, who's going to come here and what the conditions that we expect them to observe when they do come here. Um, otherwise, we're going to continue to have problems and, um, God forbid, if we wind up with a situation um, similar to that that Europe recently experienced where we have a mass migration event, we're going to have problems because 60,000 people, and I was still working for the government when this happened, uh, 60,000 children stressed the Homeland Security apparatus to the point where it nearly came grinding to a halt. We don't have the capacity built to deal with these kind of things. And if anyone's interested in this issue overall, there's, it's a little difficult to read because it's kind of written in a very stilted fashion, but there's a novel by a gentleman from France uh, named Jean Raspail, and it's called The Camp of the Saints. And it uh, talks about a French couple that's going on their honeymoon in the south of France when a giant immigration crisis breaks out in South Asia. 
and results in people just abandoning South Asia without any regard to what's going on and going to France. And it talks about all the problems that develop. Um, it's got kind of an odd French literary style, but it's got a very, very graphic and realistic depiction of the problems that are encountered when you suddenly have a bunch of people surging at your border and you don't have a controlled method to try and process them or figure out what you're going to do with them. Um, so, immigration. Biggest national security issue confronting the United States, and if we don't resolve it, we're just going to experience more September 11th style attacks, and it's not a question of, of if, it's a question of when. So, if anyone has any questions, I think we still have some time left. Sure. Um, a couple of questions, actually. Uh, talking about uh, September 11th, those uh, tourists, uh, they were really immigrants, right? They were students, as far as I know. Well, actually, some of them, uh, those criminals, uh, came on visit visa. So they did not go through that vetting process, which I went through myself 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, talking about the uh, Syria, uh, I'm Syrian-American, by the way. Um, I'm very worried about the immigrants from, from Syria, frankly. Um, because nowadays, uh, Syria is a failed state, and um, you can take passports. There are markets actually in neighboring countries. You can uh, very much get counter, like, like, you know, pay passports, IDs, birth certificates, education degrees. And I'm just trying to understand or imagine how those, you know, councils and the embassies somewhere getting through those documents and trying to figure out are they really, you know, general, uh, you know, original or fake. And we'll end up with terrorists, you know. I'm not saying that we should not get, you know, or we should not accept. Refugees, mm -hmm. immigrants from Syria, but I'm saying that there got to be a really serious thing because anything happened, I am one of those people who would get that heat, you know, that backlash, you know, mm -hmm. because you know how this 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 or consequences. So, so I I, I agree with the certain restrictions or extreme betting, what's called by the way, and um, we need to we need to work on. Uh, so you raise an interesting point, and particularly with the fraudulent documents. Um, in the last five years, there's been two or three. So the European Union has resulted in some interesting things. A lot of the passports for other countries in the European Union are printed by like the National Mint in France or in Belgium. And there has been a huge number of thefts of documents. They're usually transported along with uh, bank documents in armored cars. Um, private contractors with armored cars, especially in, in, a, in uh, you know, countries that don't allow private ownership of firearms the way that the United States does, who knows how secure they are. But they've had uh, at least 700 to 1,500 blank passports, 100% legit, stolen over the last five years in mainstream European countries. That doesn't take into account the problems that you run into in countries where the documents don't have the security features they do here. And so the problem you point out is probably the most significant one. The vetting process is really designed for us to vet people who come from places that are stable, that have record-keeping systems similar to ours, and 
with whom we have good relations. So if I get a hit on somebody from France when I was working at the government, I could call Interpol's headquarters here in D.C. and talk to French police attaché. I could reach out to the FBI to talk to a different French police attaché, and I could reach out to the DEA and talk to their drug police attaché. So those situations... Um, you know, you catch people, but mistakes still get made even in those situations because it's uh, much as Donald Rumsfeld's awkward uh, formulation drives everyone nuts. There are unknown unknowns. There are things that you don't know that you don't know, and you can't figure those out until you encounter it. So it's always a process. Um, you know, like I'm sure you've heard mentioned in classes here before, the generals are always fighting the last war. Because you can't know what's coming up. You can't predict the future. And so immigration enforcement is very much a process of that because documents change. Uh, if you don't have a specie document to compare the original to, it becomes very problematic. So I think you had a question too. Uh, well, I thought, well, and I think I'll just jump in with the Syrian refugee problem, but what's important is that the Syrian refugee problem is that the main terrorist attacks that have occurred recently have been orchestrated by people who are, if you want to call them like that, second generation immigrants. Mm -hmm. So they were not people who arrived from Syria on a boat, jumped into a boat, and arrived in European territory and decided to plot attacks. That didn't happen. And that leads us, I think, to the problem of integration. You call it assimilation. There's, I tend to go for integration, whatever. But, um, and it is true that if each country has their own sovereignty to try and pick who comes into their country or not, that is basic rule of law and uh, go without saying. But uh, I think it's very easy to always blame it on the opposite side that they're not getting integrated. While I think it should be a sort of reciprocal process because I know for a fact that lots of people do their best to try and integrate themselves or assimilate, but the US is not an easy country and it is not sometimes a very easy country. And um, so it takes us to these people who cross illegally. And okay, that is trespassing of course, but you cannot blame people for wanting to want a better life. And then you've got uh, people here in the US who are taking benefit, who are profiting from these people because they don't need to pay social security, they can work long hours for very low wages. So maybe it's not so much a matter of death, but it's a matter of training the US population that this is wrong and you can't do this, and enforcing laws upon these people, I think. And uh, yeah, well, that was a little bit. I also wanted to talk about remittances, <coughs> because usually people who work here send their money directly to their families, and I don't think that has to do that much with a corrupt Mexican government. That should maybe, you know, talk to USAID or something like that, if you have a government-government relationship other than population-wise. So I think it is indeed very necessary to distinguish very much between economic migrants, asylum seekers, refugees. But, I mean, I think it's a very complex phenomenon, and I think lots of things need to be done to yeah. I disagree. I don't think it is. And I, I think those distinctions that people make are what create the myths and create the convenience of not having to make a decision. Yes, it's unfortunate that not everyone was born in the United States, but we can't absorb the whole population of the U.S. And, and I think there's also, there's another reality that has to be taken into account because you say you can't blame people for wanting a better life. 
Well, sure, in the abstract. But the fact is, if their countries aren't working, why aren't they trying to fix them in their own countries? Well, whoever said it was. I mean, I, I don't think, uh, you know, Sam Adams and John Hancock thought there was an easy road ahead, but they didn't pick up and move to Quebec. But, I mean, it did, I mean, it did bring about a war, and it, a war of independence. It did bring about, years later, a civil war in this country. And it's sometimes exactly not that easy. And right now, international organization people, I don't think that the tearing up the country is the solution. We're seeing it in Syria right now. After what happened in Libya, when the international community just dashed into intervening in Libya, that created a failed state. And right now, we're just speaking Syria on their own because we don't want to intervene. So it's not our responsibility, but yet it is because spillover effects do affect us. But we, So it is more complex. I mean, it's not a matter of letting everyone in, I totally agree, and I mean, there's no country that can absorb that many migrants, that is for sure, but I don't think it's just, they can do it themselves, and we just wash our hands as if nothing. Well, I didn't say that, but you're making an assumption that if there is a displaced population somewhere, then the United States is obligated no. to take them. No I'm, no, I'm not saying they are obliged to take them. But it is true that the United States has signed and ratified a series of international agreements. They do not need to comply with them. That is true. They do not need to comply with them. But it's kind of ironic to me sometimes how we, you know, well, we U.S. tries to, you know, implement democracy in places like Iraq or Afghanistan and human rights and stuff like that. But then they, they fail to look upon themselves and see sometimes that some work needs to be done. I'm not saying that it's a system, not at all. I'm just saying that it's neither black nor white. Well, I agree with you completely. I don't think that we should be trying to implement democracy in these places. And it's absolutely foolish to think that you're going to go into a place which has no cultural history of democracy and none of the institutions that are required for it and have it spring up overnight. But I think that's a different issue from the, the issue that we're experiencing because, yes, those people in France were second generation. Um, I think it's just taken as sort of a cultural shibboleth that they're not being integrated by the French, and it has nothing to do with their own desire to stay no, separate. It's mutual. I just said it, I said it, it was a reciprocal, reciprocal process. I mean, it has to be two-sided, otherwise it's not going But I think if you look into the situations that were encountered there in France, all of those people who engaged in the attacks spent time in French prisons and were actually radicalized by people who were first-generation people. And... The, the latest attack with the police was it like us just kind of not radicalized? Well, I think he was radicalized since he killed eighty people with a truck, which is which isn't typical French behavior. But can we just so just clarify since we're talking about radicalization? Can we just clarify this myth that? She or he went somewhere, got radicalized. Like this, this criminal, you know, in San Bernardino, the lady, she went somewhere, but she got radicalized. Mm -hmm. and she came here and she committed that horrendous, uh, that you know, attacks uh, uh, and killed those innocent people. I mean, I don't get it. Is, it. is it like injection? They give it somebody, this is radicalization injection? Uh, you, you, I don't get this. I think it's a convenient term to discuss it. I also think it has to do with the fact that in the United States, uh, 
we have become so secularized, secularized, excuse me, not to the extent of, say, Germany, France, and the United Kingdom, but compared to what we always were, that I think there is an inability of people to understand that someone might do something which we consider irrational based on faith, because we don't understand faith anymore as a culture or a people. And I happen to think that as far as all this goes, that... Um, these people who are committing these attacks are people who very deeply believe in something, whether it's correct or not from a theological perspective in that religion. I am certainly not an expert on Islam, so I, I don't even want to comment. But the fact is that whether they're right or wrong, they believe they are committed to a specific ideology. So in that sense, they're not any different than people who say in the 50s and 60s were, were communists. Or, uh, you know, in the 20s and 30s, the anarchists and socialists that we were, we were uh, confronted with. So, I, I think it, it's a complex phenomenon. Um, but, really, when you stop and think about it, the Islamic immigration and the terrorist problem is only a tiny part of the overall immigration population. We have a very, very small Muslim population in the United States. It has had a history of being extremely well integrated. I mean, there's a number of people that have done extremely well. I mean, I think of Casey Kasem and Jamie Farr, the actor, uh, that most people don't even know come from Middle Eastern or a Muslim background. Um, we have, and this is a problem that we have in the United States, generally speaking, when we go someplace and we get involved in a conflict, we then develop an attachment to the place and let a large number of people from that place into the United States. You may not realize this, there is an enormous number of German soldiers who were taken prisoner of war, shipped to Oregon in the United States and put to work logging uh, so that the timbers could be used in the, uh, the variety of different war industries from shipbuilding to that attempts to make plywood airplanes. Most of those guys wound up becoming United States citizens. And they entered the U.S. as prisoners of war. Um, so we have this habit of bringing in large numbers of people. So if you look at the situation with the Middle East, we really didn't have that big Middle Eastern population, but it's been growing. We have 3 million people that we've brought in. And the problem is not that we're bringing in people from the Middle East. The problem is that we're not being selective about saying, hey, listen, your situation may be tough, but we don't know who you are and what you're into. I think driving the immigration discussion up to radicalization and terrorism is not a good idea because you would be taking it from a professional point of view. And I was shocked if you calculated that 4% of the population are illegally black. That was a big number. So, in my perception, I give an example, I come from Baghdad, and because of all the economic things in Iraq, like in the 50s and 60s, there were immigration, internal immigration mm -hmm. from the villages, the city. But in the 50s, 60s, 70s, all that immigration started to accelerate. In the 80s and beginning of 90s, this, again, because of economic reasons, a lot of people started to come into cities, but they didn't try to assimilate. So in my neighborhood, it's considered kind of a good one, or a posh one. And these days, I have people entering really to apply, because then, not they behave like they're in the village. They're not black people, but it's different perception. This is like some kind of what's happening here. You have people coming illegally in different ways, but not discriminating. But I'm looking, what I'm seeing sometimes in, uh, and especially in Canada, 
and Northern Europe is that immigrants in any situation, from legal or illegally, they will not get any path to citizenship or legal status until they get plenty of training, especially language, culture, etc., which doesn't happen here. But my neighbors just migrated to Canada to Quebec, mm -hmm. and uh, they, they were refugees legally and that stuff. Mm -hmm. so they get three months of French language training, mm -hmm. English language training, and they teach them law. I haven't seen any of that happening with the uh, guys coming from Iraq uh, on the SID program or at, or Ireland program uh, things. It's, it's a tier. And we find, and maybe the gentleman here, find it you have eight lanes where people don't speak even English or speak a whole language, or this is a bit Arabic. Uh, and yes, I think I feel for a country like the US, this is a problem why people don't like to speak at least the language. Mm -hmm. And you raise a very significant issue. There's been a lot of discussion during the uh, presidential campaign about using Australia or Canada systems, which are points-based. They're based on job categories that are unfilled in those societies. We do have a lot of assimilation activities that go on in the United States. To the extent that the government is involved, it tends to contract them out to private organizations, not corporations, but not-for-profit organizations. And there are a lot of community-based organizations. The problem there is that if you have a community-based organization, and I used to do a lot of volunteer work with an organization that uh, dealt with the Somali population in the United States. We have a large number of people that have just come from Somalia and they set up an organization to assist other people. If you have a base of people that have been here for a long time, you can effectively assimilate. But if you haven't completely assimilated yourself, it becomes a problem. And so maybe you can get a surface level of integration but you don't necessarily get successful integration. And I think that the government has largely disengaged itself from these activities in the 20s and 30s. Um, there was a lot more government concern about this, but over time it's become sort of a thing that leads to a lot of um, accusations of you know, racism, xenophobia, and violations of the politically correct code. So the government has largely um, withdrawn. If uh, if you're interested in this issue, there is a book which I think may be out of print, but you can pick it up on Abe Books or uh, used on Amazon called Alien Nation that was written by a gentleman named Peter Brimlow. Um, fantastic book. And there's another one who's written by a Washington Post reporter named Georgianne Geyer that is called American No More that discusses these. And uh, they're both great reads and they're both actually fairly quick to read. I think there were a couple more questions to hear and then... Get him first, and then you. Um, I just want to talk about, you've been mentioning assimilation a lot, and how we select those that uh, come into the country that want to assimilate or become part of the United States. And I'm just wondering, um, initially, when you talk about the founding fathers, they came, they wanted people who had the same ideas of institution and liberty. Um, now, like you mentioned, everyone who isn't Native American is an immigrant, and they come from all over the world, all kinds of ideologies. Well, and even the Native Americans were immigrants. Okay, so zero people are not immigrants in the United States. Then. They come from all kinds of ideologies. So what specifically do you hope or would you recommend that we assimilate people to? Which ideologies, which institutions are American? Well, I mean, we, we could... Yeah, so well, I, I, personally, I think it's a foolish question that sidesteps the issue. I mean, what is what is it to be American? If you go, 
if if you go to France, they they think that we have a very unique culture. They can spot us coming a mile away. Well, I, I think we have a culture that is derived from the institutions and culture of England and that largely is influenced by Western Christianity. And I don't think we need to apologize that for anyone. I mean, this is a very free and open country where people can practice whatever religion they like. But the fact is, and I, you know, I think a good example is when Mormonism started to spread, they said, hey, polygamy is great. And the Supreme Court said, no, it ain't, not here. And that was that. Um, how do you assimilate people? That's a tough question. I think a lot of it has to do with education. It, it has to do with people observing the traditions. I speak fluent French. There's things I don't do here. I'm not going to kiss you on both cheeks. And yet, I will do that to pretty much any guy that gets introduced to me in a certain circumstance in France. That would probably get me punched in the mouth in the United States. Um, and, you know, I'm okay with that. The French do things their way. We do it our way. Sovereignty is essentially an agreement to disagree. So... If you're running an immigration system, how do you figure out if somebody is going to assimilate? Well, that may sound like it's a hard question, but it's actually fairly easy. Does the person have an ability to communicate in the language? Or do they have an, a, a demonstrated interest in doing that? Does the person have a job skill that they're eager to use? Does the person have an educational goal that they want to accomplish for themselves and their children? See, the problem is we have a lot of people that we admit they want to sit here and they want to collect money and they want to enjoy the utopia, but they don't want to give anything in return. And they don't have any indicators to say that they could in any way be successful. But the fact is that someone who is entrepreneurial enough to be able to run a business in, say, Iraq over the last 10 years where the, the uh, country has been falling apart, it's probably a pretty good bet that they're going to be successful here in the United States where there's a stable environment to start a business. But then the questions become, if you're in a place that has become instable because there are ideologies at work and organizations at work that are fundamentally contrary to what we expect here in America, you have to make a judgment call. Now, I don't have a problem with that. We've always done that. That's what I did for a living for, for you know, well nigh on 20 years. The problem is that we are fast reaching a point where we think it's politically incorrect to even engage in that kind of inquiry. And that's a problem because we have an established culture here with an established set of institutions. Immigration and terrorism risk analysis, mm -hmm. and I wanted to read some statistics, statistics to you and see what you think about it. Mm -hmm. um, it was over a 41-year period study, so since 75, and one in, in, in every 3.6 million years that there would be a terrorist attack here. Another one, a terrorist attack caused by a refugee in America, one in 3.64 billion. Um, a terrorist attack from an illegal immigrant here, one in 10.9 billion, and then a terrorist attack from a tourist with an uh, HB visa, one in 3.9 million, but of course that's skewed because 9-11 um, brings about 98.6% of the terrorist attacks in the last 40 years. So I want to see how you respond to that with these, this factual data. It's, it's utterly meaningless. I mean, it, it first, well, first of all, it's statistics, which can be manipulated 20 different ways from Sunday. But the fact is that we know, as an empirical fact, 
that there are people that have come here and committed terrorist attacks. All 19 of the people that were involved in the September 11th attack were people who came here on various, whether it was non-immigrant visas or immigrated here as lawful permanent residents. Uh, the blind sheikh, Abdel Rahman, came here from Egypt seeking political asylum. He was on a list to not, he, technically he was on the no-fly list and he was on a terrorist watch list and we made a mistake and admitted him and processed his asylum application. So, I mean, what is, what is Cato attempting to accomplish? I mean, the fact is that when I fly on an airplane, I have a very, very, very low risk of being caught in an air disaster. But if the plane crashes, I'm just as dead. That's like, you know, it either happens or it doesn't aspect, but that's not true. Like, this is actual real data, and it's factual. It's not meaningless. I mean, well, it's, I mean, there are plenty of things that are factual that, that are completely meaningless. I mean, Bruce Jenner wants to be a woman. That's factual. It has absolutely no meaning for me. So I think when you look at these things, is there a low risk of someone becoming a victim of a terrorist. Yes, but there's a very high risk of people from certain parts of the world committing terrorism, whether abroad, in their homes, or here. So the question is, is that risk low enough that we feel comfortable letting those people in in large numbers? Or is it high enough that we want to say, you know, everyone wants to come here. We have a large number of people that want to come to the United States, so we should say, we're going to let this cool off, figure out what's going on over here, and we'll deal with the other immigration issues that we have. And I mean, I agree. You know, immigration and terrorism is a bigger issue for the places that we're not paying attention to. I mean, right now, I would say that the danger of terrorism coming out of Latin America, uh, you know, and the danger of if Venezuela becomes a failed state, people engaging in, in you know, communism is really good kind of terrorism that we saw here in the 20s and the 30s, um, that's a bigger danger. But the fact is that it doesn't mean the danger doesn't exist just because there's a low possibility of it. It's probably a very low possibility that Russia is going to nuke us, but the fact is they've got a nuclear arsenal and could do it. So if you're in whatever government organization that deals with those things, that's, that's what you worry about. And the fact is that I, I, I don't tend to believe Cato's statistics. Cato is a very... Uh, it's an organization that's very specifically biased in an open borders direction. They feel it's part of their libertarian philosophy. And the fact is that people process data. I mean, none of those are raw numbers. There, there are things that are you know, done to process them and correct for supposed bias and everything else. I mean, if you just want to count, um, there's a website that tracks all of the terrorist organizations and all of the incidents that are... Uh, affiliated with Islamic terrorist groups in the world. Since the September 11th attacks, there's been something like 3,246 with a very narrow, narrow definition of terrorist attacks by organizations that are affiliated with Islamic extremist groups. There's been like 38 from organizations that are affiliated with other religions. And then when you add in political terrorism, like from groups like the Tamil Tigers, it goes up to about three or 400. So, I mean, there's an issue. Does, does this mean that everyone from that part of the world is bad? No, not remotely. But it does mean that there, there's a political and a security issue that has to be addressed. Anyone else? Sure. Mm -hmm. 
I got nothing to say. You cannot create such numbers. It's not perfect. It's not equal. But in the same context, you cannot say immigration leads to terrorism, but because terrorism is an act of harming people by using normal protest. I'm not English to confess, but people usually trust the system. A terrorist can harm the system mm -hmm. because everybody trusts everything. Mm -hmm. And immigration here can be used by terrorists as a loophole. Yes. If immigration cannot help them. They use another way. Right, exactly. Because everywhere in the world is smuggling, trafficking, you can traffic things from Kent mm -hmm. or by ships or something else. So if somebody insists on doing harmful something, they can do it. Right, I mean, it, it's. Immigration is kind of. The loopholes in immigration mm -hmm. might help them. It, in a lot of ways, it's very much like crime. And the question is not, do I shut this off? Do I disengage from the problem? It's how do you take a reasonable measure? I mean, you don't want to become a victim of certain types of crime. You put a lock on your house. It's a very inoffensive measure. You open it with the key. You go in at night. You lock it behind you. People can't get in. And so what I'm saying is not that immigration is bad or, or that it is something that should be stopped. But it is something that our failure to manage it as a political and governmental problem that we all in the United States as citizens should be concerned about has created problems with it. And you're 100% right. It, it, it becomes a loophole that can be exploited if we don't manage it correctly. Ah. Good sure. When this so called Islamic terrorism started, uh, we start realizing this. Do we have like incidents prior, like 30 years? Um, okay, I'm no expert on this. The person to talk to would be Dr. Gorka or Dr. Struzan. But as I understand it, um, the a lot of the we'll put it this way: if you if you want to look at it in a in a very historical fashion, you you can go back and you can look at separatist groups that were like operating in the Ottoman Empire. But I think as far as a modern phenomenon. It started when the uh, groups that wanted a separate Palestinian state figured out that they could link up with groups like the Red Army Faction, the Bader Meinhof Gang, and start studying their methods. And so you had this kind of unholy alliance between all of these leftist groups and these political groups in the Middle East that were involved in these things. And so it, it emerged about the same time as the... the uh, I guess what would be characterized more as political terrorism problem emerged. And it really, it's, in a lot of ways, it's the same phenomenon. I mean, I think 99% of Americans realize that most people in the Muslim world, to the extent that you can even use that term, just want to go about life and make their way and not create any problems. And it's a small segment that is, is creating the problem. But that's, that's the segment that we have to confront, and we have to figure out meaningful ways of trying to distinguish those people from the people who are really just looking to get out of a bad situation if we want the system to work correctly. So just clarification. So we would say that it was originally uh, derived from the Israeli-Palestinian struggle? I, honestly, I don't know, and that, that's certainly not my area of expertise. I mean, I, I'm, I know about immigration and, and law because that's what I've been working in. Um, you know, most of what I've learned about 
terrorism has been in terms of trying to address the immigration issues connected with it. And so it tends to be, what's the group that's operating today and who am I looking for in this pile of applications? But I think in terms of the history of it, Dr. Struzan is amazing. Um, and I would recommend taking one of his courses. Um, and I have not met Dr. Gorka, but I've seen him uh, speak at a number of different things. And he's extremely knowledgeable. Thank everyone. Those are excellent questions, and I appreciate you coming here to listen to me talk about a very contentious and controversial issue. But it is something that I would encourage everyone that's going to school here to try and get some more familiarity with because it's never going to go away. And it's actually a very interesting issue, and there's some phenomenal career opportunities here in D.C. in, in the, uh, the field. So, And I'm going to be hiring an intern soon at FAIR, so keep your eyes out. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you.